morning. Today's reading is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 19, verses 1 to 29, which is found in your pew Bibles on page 19. So that's Genesis 19, 1 to 29, page 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to greet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are the men who came to, to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters. We have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them, but don't do anything to those men, for they have come under my protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then he struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else, sons-in-law, daughters, or sons or daughters, or anyone in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against his people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So the Lord went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry. Get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of the dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when this city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and that of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city. For the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you'll be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please, your servant has found favor in your eyes. And you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, look here is a town 
near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to them, Very well, I will grant this request to you. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. From the Lord out of the heavens, thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that had overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sue. Well read. Uh, do please keep that open. We'll um, obviously be referring to it. Um, reactions to what we just read? It's pretty sobering. Reactions to Lot and his, um, his goings on in that chapter? I don't know. Yuck doesn't quite get it right, does it? It's much stronger than that. Reactions to God and what God's doing in that chapter? Let's start with that. We'll come back to Abraham's nephew Lot uh, uh, afterwards. I I think a headline to describe what God's doing in this chapter is that God will destroy all wickedness. That was my summary of what God is up to here. And the temptation for us in a, uh, a long time later is to think, well, that's the past, isn't it? It's the Old Testament. Well, listen to Jesus in... Luke chapter 17, he thinks back to this time. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. That's the words of Jesus. So this isn't something in the distant past. It's something that lies ahead of the world and of all of us in the future as well. God will destroy all wickedness. That's the headline. Does that sound like good news or bad news? That's where I want us to start with this. Is it good news or bad news that God will destroy all wickedness? You see, our society as a whole, I think, is pretty carefree, pretty kind of live and let live, do your own thing. But we do care about justice, don't we? There's a social justice movement right now. We care about what happens. And um, if someone's done or said something that other people think, no, that's wrong, there's usually a pushback, particularly on social media, trial by Twitter, judge, jury, and executioner, sometimes with really horrific consequences for the person who's targeted, as we know from recent events. 
But what that shows is we do care about what's right and wrong. If you ever hear phrases like, oh, we had it coming, she had it coming, what goes around comes around, it shows that all of us deep down do have a sense of justice that actually what's wrong ought to be punished and things ought to be put right. Of course, the problem is with all of us, we humans just in this room, we can't all agree on what's right and wrong, can we? Who's actually going to decide that at the end of the day? And the Bible tells us that 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 person is God, that actually God will hold every human being throughout the whole of history accountable for our lives. He is God of gods, King of kings, Lord of lords, totally holy, totally incorruptible, totally good. What he says is right is right. What he says is wrong is wrong. And that's who lies ahead of us all in the future. Um, So let's see how he judges Sodom, how he goes about it, and learn about the God who we will all one day stand before face-to-face when he judges our lives. Let's look up back. If you've got the Bible open, just on the left-hand page in chapter 18, if you go to verse 20, you see there, there's an outcry has reached God about the grievous sin of Sodom. So verse 21, he says, okay, let's go down and have a look. Let's see for myself. And he dispatches these two angels, and they're the ones who arrive at the beginning of chapter 19, verse 1, at Sodom. Now, Lot, Abraham's nephew, is one of the first people they meet. He's at the uh, town gate. And um, his eagerness to have them stay at his house is a bit of a clue that maybe the rumors reaching heaven are true. The visitors, they're saying, oh, we're more than happy to stay in the town square. The benches there look very comfortable. We're just going to get out our traveling stuff. We'll have a lie down there. No problem. And Lot, verse 3, insisted so strongly that they, that they did go with him and entered his house. And we don't have to wait long to find out why. The scene in verse 4 at Lot's house is horrific, isn't it? Every male in the city at his door wanting to rape the visitors. It is utterly horrendous. Is it good news or bad news that God will destroy all wickedness? Isn't it good news? When it comes to evil, God does not lean back in some sort of celestial rocking chair and pretend, oh, well, you know. Evil matters to God. Lying matters to God. Selfishness matters to God. Deceit matters to God. Sexual exploitation by Hollywood directors or by whomever matters to God. Human trafficking matters to God. Children being attacked on the streets of London whilst on their way home from school, that matters to God. Grenfell matters to God. Six million Jews and all the other atrocities. It matters to God. Sometimes you and I get angry when we see things or we hear things. But often we're, we're powerless to actually stop them and to fix the situations. But you see, when God gets angry at sin, he has the power to punish it, which is good news. It means that evil won't carry on forever, getting worse and worse and worse. It would be horrific if there was no accountability in this universe, if it wasn't a moral universe, if evil was just, you know, it's just another consumer choice. Some people are good, some people are evil, you know, got to tolerate everybody. If it was like that, it would be horrendous, but it's not. 
We live in a moral universe. Right and wrong matter. God made it that way. And we see in God's hatred of all that is wrong and wicked and evil. We see uh, something good. We see a God who's worthy of our worship. That he is incorruptible. He won't change. And so we rightly worship him for that. Now the danger is we read something like um, uh, Genesis 19. Is we'll read through and we'll, we'll sort of simply cheer. We'll, we'll think about this and think, yeah, we do care about justice. And look at that city. It's full of sexual violence and horrific things. Well, if they were like that, then fair play, nuke them. That's the danger is that we'll react like that, having read Genesis 19. But it's not how God wants us to react. He's not trying to give you and me a reason to kind of feel smug and sort of self-righteous and look down on other people who have sins that are much more blatant than mine. No, there's plenty in my life too. There's plenty in my life that makes me worthy of God punishing my wickedness, destroying me for my wickedness. And I want to persuade you that the same is true for all of us. If you need convincing, think about Lot's story. We're going to just quickly recap it. If you won't, if you remember back in chapter 13, if you were with us at that point, he made a decision there that wasn't wrong in itself quite. It was more he just, lo- he just made a decision on how things looked. He chose the thing that looked the best, uh, even though he risked his sort of himself and his family by moving them right next to this wicked city of Solomon, Sodom. So he, he takes a risk in chapter 13. Next chapter 14, he's actually living in Sodom with his family. Then by chapter 19, as we've just seen, he's one of the elders at the gate. And do you see, there's a movement there for Lot. He goes closer and closer and closer over time to the heart of Sodom and the inevitable com- compromises that that would mean. When he first pitched his tent near Sodom, to say that, well, what they're doing has nothing to do with me, is kind of fair enough, isn't it? He's just arrived. But years later, when he's one of the elders in the town, in the city, he can hardly say, well, it's nothing to do with me. And so maybe he convinced himself he was doing some good by being there and being a positive influence. But if you look down to uh, verse 9, it shows he was only ever tolerated. They'd never forgotten that he was a foreigner. And he certainly wasn't respected. Now, giving lots of credit, he did do the right thing to try and protect the visitors. But then I don't know what was going on. I mean, my face was, I couldn't help but react as I as Steve read through the story. The way he, I mean, it's just, I mean, yeah, it's just horrendous, isn't it? The, the mob want these visitors. And he says, oh, I've got the perfect solution. Have my daughters instead. What father would say that? What on earth is he thinking? That's where Lot gets to in this narrative. But isn't that what sin does? It gets its claws into us. It's a little compromise and a slightly bigger compromise and a slightly bigger compromise and then a slightly bigger compromise and then, oh no, did I really do that? Did I really say that? It's why all sin is appalling. The tiniest compromise, as well as the biggest, flagrant, horrendous act. It all is directed away from God, our own way. And it all deserves his punishment. And the Bible warns, Jesus warns, the most loving man has ever lived. He warns that there will be this day 
when God destroys all wickedness. And actually reading Genesis 19, knowing that God did it in the past, he said he'd do it and then he carried it out, means that we know that when Jesus says he'll do it in the future, he will do it in the future as well. It should make us tremble. No one wants to respond to God um, uh, just based on fear. On a good day, you and I will be meditating on how much God loves us and we'll feel something of that maybe. And we'll be able to respond in love to God's love for us. That's what will motivate us on a good day. Other days, it'll be discipline that kind of keeps us going, kind of good routines. But sometimes, rightly, it will be fear of God and going against God that stops us from doing the wrong thing. That's kind of appropriate. A kind of a holy fear of God. Not being afraid of God. He's totally good. He doesn't get angry on random, for sort of no reason, just randomly. But we are right to fear him in the sense to, wow, he, to respect his, his, his goodness, his greatness, his power, and to be afraid of going against him, choosing something we know to be wrong. But why don't we need to be afraid of God? I've said it. I'm sure we know the answer. But where do we find it here? Well, I think we find that there's a ray of hope in this story in a pretty dark chapter which shows that God will be merciful to all who trust him. Actually, we've seen the same principle in Genesis. If you've read through Genesis and we see it with Noah, uh, we see it right through the Bible. We see it earlier on with Abraham, right through the Bible. It's true for you and me today as well. God will be merciful to all who trust him. So, second half of of chapter 18, we didn't ever read it, I go on that left-hand page. You have this conversation, this encounter between Abraham and God, where Abraham pleads with God for Sodom. So if you look at uh, verse 25 on the, on the left-hand page, uh, chapter 18, he appeals to God's justice. He says, far be it from you to kill the righteous with the wicked. Will not the God of all the earth do right? And he starts talking numbers with God. What, what if there were 50 righteous people in the city? Won't you spare it for their sake? And God says he will. Abraham decides to ask again, how about if there are only uh, 45? 40? 30? 20? 10? How about if there are only 10 righteous people in Sodom, God? Will you spare it then? And look at what God says. Verse 32, just before our bit. For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. That's God's heart. He's a just God. He's not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. And there's really insight there of how we might wrestle with God in prayer and intercede with him. That's, that's real raw prayer that Abraham's praying. He's taking what he knows about God, what God's promised about himself, his character, and saying, Lord, I want to see your character apply to these people, to this situation. It's a great example, a great lesson in prayer, that, which is another sermon entirely. So the next thing that happens is the fact-finding mission that we've uh, already talked about, and the angels go to Sodom, and we, we're kind of rooting for them. What are they going to find? Are there going to be ten righteous people when they get there? How many did they find? Our author zooms in on the most likely candidate, Lot, Abraham's nephew. What would you say? Is he righteous? can't say that about him can you not what he says to the crowd and we should feel the sadness of that 
Judgment is what sin deserves, wickedness deserves. It's about to fall. And God says, listen, I'll, I'll, I'll hold back if there are just ten people who are relating to me in the right way, living, relating to each other in the right way, loving me, loving, loving each other. That's the summary, isn't it, of what's the right way to live. If there are just ten people doing that, and yet there aren't. There's not even one. So the angels do the next best thing and they warn Lot, run, take as many as you can. It ends up just being his wife and his daughters, doesn't it? The sons-in-law, they think he's joking. What? Fire's going to rain from the sky and destroy the whole city? You must be joking. And so they stay behind. If you look down to verse 16, Lot too is kind of a bit wobbly. He hesitated. He probably felt a wrench of leaving everything behind. The angels have to take him and the, the, the women by the hand and, and, and say, come on, let's, let's go now. And do you see the comment from the author in verse 16? For the Lord was merciful to them. And what happened is Lot trusted God's warning just about enough. He did he, he just about enough to be led out, to be rescued. He didn't say to the angels, no, actually I'm going to stay with my sons-in-law. And that's the thing, that's all God looks for. He looks for someone to take him at his word and trust it and act on it. And, and then, then they're saved. God's merciful. The bar's pretty low. Lot couldn't even get himself out. He was hesitating, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And the angels, but he, he does allow himself to be let out and rescued as the Lord rains down fire on these rich, successful, self-confident cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So verse 29, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. When I was growing up, uh, people weren't so much worried about global warming and uh, climate change as the um, what seemed then the very real possibility of um, nuclear war. Um, this was the sort of um, late 70s, 80s, and uh, height of the Cold War, and people were very, very worried about East versus West. And I remember the, uh, I wasn't allowed to see it the first time around because I was, my mum and dad were worried that, you know, it would be too graphic. But other people saw it and I eventually saw one of these documentaries about what happens when they drop a nuclear bomb and what it does to people and just the devastation. I'm told, um, I'm told that in the 1950s, before anyone had seen that kind of documentary, the army issued a book to its uh, soldiers on what to do in the event of a nuclear attack. And these are some of the things it said. If the enemy attacks you with a nuclear bomb, do not panic. Turn away from the explosion so that it won't blind you. Lie on the floor in a prone position. And if you have your backpack, place it on top of you to offer you some protection. And you're thinking... It's a nuclear bomb. A backpack isn't going to help that much. And I guess that's like Judgment Day, the future day, when we'll all stand before God, the whole human race. And when God finally does destroy all human rebellion. On that day, a nuclear fallout shelter is what we'll need. We won't be able to justify any of the wrong things we've done. And there's only one who is a nuclear fallout shelter, the one that God has provided. 
You see, the angels went to Sodom looking for righteous people and found none. Throughout human history, there has only ever been one human being who lived right for the whole of his life, who did right to God, who loved God like God loves him, who did right to those around him. Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, said of him, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Not even his words let him down. And that makes his death on the cross the nuclear fallout shelter for the rest of the human race. The reason being that he, the right one, the righteous one, swapped places with us on the cross. And God's judgment against human sin fell on him. All of it fell on him on the cross. The full force of it. And Jesus, as he died, dealt with it fully, finally, and forever. And so do you see, if you can get under his protection... Like a fallout shelter, it all lands on him and you're safe under that protection. The only way to escape God's judgment when it fell on Sodom was to trust what he said and flee to safety. The only way for you and me to be safe, for the world to be safe, when God's judgment falls on the final day, will be to flee to Jesus, to put our hope in him, what he did for us when he died on the cross, when he rose again. He's the only shelter, but there's room for everyone who'll come. Millions and millions and millions of boys and girls and men and women. He'll shelter us. So let's ask ourselves, am I doing that? Am I, am I someone who's sheltering under Jesus? Is that my hope for the future, for the judgment day? For all those who are doing that, a couple of takeaways from what we've seen. The first I've mentioned already, Moses' example of prayer. There's something amazing to learn there, isn't there? Are we praying for situations, pleading God's character for people, for, for, for places, for this um, epidemic that's facing us? Are we pleading with God based on what we know of him? That's great prayer if we are. Second takeaway is, I think, to learn from Lot's uh, failed attempt to speak uh, to others and warn them. His sons-in-law thought he was joking. Why might that have been? I mean, it was a pretty serious thing to say to them, wasn't it? I imagine it might have been the first time they'd heard him ever, or at least for a while, be so serious about God. Maybe normally not Lot was one of those kind of live and let live, tolerant kind of guys who just sort of, you know, just sort of let everyone be and didn't actually speak out about anything. And of course, none of us can force our faith on another person, but we do want to be consistent so that our lips and our lives are telling a story that's pointing to Jesus because we are heading that direction ourselves. Final thought, I said we don't need to be afraid of God. I was assuming something, wasn't I, when I said that? Of course we don't need to be afraid of God if we're taking shelter. That's what I was assuming, that we have fled to Jesus to take shelter. I hope we all have, because outside of Jesus, God will destroy all wickedness, including the wickedness in me and in you. But wonderfully, God will be merciful to all who trust him and take shelter in the death of his son. Our next song is going to help us meditate on that and prepare for communion, which of course is, the, is our regular habit to just remember the body broken, the blood shed, God's destructive wrath against human wickedness falling on Jesus. And to remember he did that for us. That's what we're coming to, and the song will help us 
to worship at his feet where wrath and mercy meet. Let's stand, shall we, and sing.